0: Well, church, I would love it if you would turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. You're going to want to follow along this morning as we read in the second half of that chapter there. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Love it if you would follow along with me. We're going to hop right into it this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 16. As the Apostle Paul continues to make an argument in defense for the ministry of Uh, of the gospel in the midst of Corinth, a defense against false teachers that have made their way into the church. And here he makes a a fascinating argument. So please follow along with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 16 through the end of the chapter. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure." And apart from all other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak? Who is made to fall, and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, He who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket, through a window in the wall, and escaped his hands. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for this fascinating argument that the Apostle Paul makes regarding your strength and his weakness. I pray that your gospel would be that which is made much of, your glory, your power, your fruitful and faithful work in our midst would be what we celebrate today. And the only thing that we are impressed with is that which is spiritual, that which is of your word and spirit. Thank you, Lord. We trust that this would be your work in our midst this morning. We pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, this is a really fascinating, I hope you saw it. It's a really interesting argument that the Apostle Paul is is making here. He's speaking about a a foolish argument, a foolish boast that's being made. This morning's passage is pretty lengthy. We're going to spend the majority of our time in just actually the first few uh, verses of the passage, and then we'll walk our way very quickly through the remainder of the passage. But if you look at verse 16, he says, I repeat, let no one think. Me foolish. Let no one think me foolish. Now, interestingly, the point of the book of Proverbs is to train up the worshiper of God in wisdom against foolishness. It's really the central theme of the entire book of Scripture. It also gives instruction on how to handle a foolish person that makes their way into the midst of the congregation. It gives us that instruction. So let us note that a fool is not simply someone that we deem to be less intelligent than we are. All right? The second that we believe that a fool is simply someone who isn't as smart as we are, what we're actually doing is putting on display that we're the fool. All right? A fool, according to scripture, is one who lives his life and thinks his thoughts without the fear of the Lord, central to his every concern. A fool is one who is literally ungodly or godless, whose frame of reference is himself and his own mind. I'm sorry, not one of us have a mind or a self that is sufficient to be the center of our own philosophy. None of us can contain our own worldview in and of ourselves and our own minds. And so a fool is the one who makes makes his thoughts the center, makes himself the center of his own thoughts, and is ungodly or godless. Now, interestingly, Proverbs chapter 26 has two statements about the fool. These two statements in verses 4 and 5 look on their face to be contradictory, but you'll see very quickly they're actually expressing something really important. Proverbs 26, 4, and 5. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. The next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Well, What's going on here? Which is it? Answer not a fool or answer a fool according to his folly. Well, in the answer a fool not according to his folly, lest he, you be like him yourself, when you answer a fool, you're going to end up looking like a fool. You're actually giving credence to the fool's argument. You're drawing attention to the fool's words. And you're going to have to enter into his argument, which itself is foolish. And you're going to look foolish yourself. Better, more often than not, just keep your mouth shut. And let the fool's philosophy play itself out. And everybody will see very quickly, ah, that's the vanity Of an ungodly foolishness. But then answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. On the other hand, if the people around don't catch on to the foolishness of the fool, somebody's going to have to speak up. Somebody is going to have to answer this person because they're beginning to look wise in their own eyes and even in the eyes of the congregation. So this is Paul. He doesn't want to be foolish. He doesn't want to look foolish. He doesn't want to act like a fool by entering into the arguments of the false teacher fools that had made their way into the midst of the congregation in Corinth. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to even have to address the boastfulness of the foolish false teachers. But since the Corinthians haven't dealt with them, and they've remained among them, and they gained a foothold there, Paul now has to confront them himself. Paul wanted the false teaching and the arrogant manner of the fools to be seen on its face for the foolishness that it is. I mean, just consider the humble way of the proclamation of the apostle Paul compared to the boastfulness of the fools and false teachers. Just compare them. But the Corinthians didn't get it. So he has to enter into the argument. So here we go. Here we go with Paul entering into the argument. Look at verse 17. What well, I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I'm, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Not as the Lord would, but as a fool. The boasting is not the way of the Lord, nor is the way of the Lord to enter into a fool's argument. Why did Jesus, when asked foolish questions by Pharisees and other leaders in his culture, why did he so often simply answer with another question and let the fool be found out? In fact, enter in is specifically contrary to the way of the Lord. But Paul's purpose here is to show just how foolish is the ways of the fools by showing how unbecoming it looks like when he enters into it. Let me just boast the way that the fools boast and see what you think of it and compare it to the way that Paul usually is in your midst, so that when he begins to boast, you're like, huh, that just doesn't seem right. And in doing so, that they might identify what doesn't seem right is the way that the false teachers had been among them. How contrary are Paul's next words to his prior way among the Corinthians? Why? What's wrong with all of this foolish boasting? Verse 18, since many boast according to the flesh. That's what's wrong with it. It's boasting according to the flesh. Our boast is to be in what the Lord has done, even if what he has done is through our lives in the midst of our faithfulness. It's the Lord that has borne a great fruit in our midst. And so we are to rejoice, and we are to boast, and we are to celebrate, and we are to remember the Lord, his glory, his fruitfulness in our midst. What's foolish is a foolish boasting in the flesh. That's what's so foolish about the boast of the Corinthians' false teachers and of the first element of Paul's own boast in just a few moments. Now, he says something in verse 19 that's particularly biting. Look at it with me. For you, gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. I mean, you're so wise that you're willing to bear with the foolishness of the false teachers making their great boasts among you. He goes then on to show the fruit of the wisdom of the false teachers who are in their midst. Now Sam Storms has been really helpful to me this past week as he walks through uh, this variety of quote-unquote fruits of wisdom regarding the, the teaching that had been at work among the false teachers in Corinth, he one of the things that he does that's so helpful, Sam Storms, is he, he draws out a few particular places in Scripture, in Jesus' words and in Paul's other instructions in some of his other letters, to, to compare and contrast the way of Christ and his gospel with the way of the false teachers. So like I said, we're going to spend the majority of our time here walking through verse 20. Look at it with me. For you bear with it. If someone makes slaves of you, makes slaves. Now that's not only foolish, that's vile. The Corinthians have taken up a position of subjects to false teachers. And the false teachers have taken up a position of masters among the church. The, the Corinthians have, have literally handed over control of their spiritual lives to these false teachers who have made their way into the life of the church. Now, that couldn't be further away from the way of the genuine minister of the gospel. Listen to Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 20. Matthew 20, 26 through 28. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. How can the servant of Christ lord it over the followers of Christ? The servant of Christ ought to be a servant of his body, right? Paul, earlier in this very book, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. For we proclaim not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. You have slaves and masters, or slaves and lords. And the Apostle Paul is saying, we didn't proclaim ourselves as your Lord and make you slaves. We proclaim Jesus as Lord with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. Part of the proclamation of the gospel itself is that we, as proclaimers, are servants of Christ and his church. We see the church not as something to be lorded over, but as Christ's own body, a place where his glory is made known, and so we serve. Now, it's interesting, it can also be the theology that is preached, the the that The false teaching that is proclaimed that enslaves. Sometimes such foolish dominance comes in a far more deceptive form. It's not so much the false teacher that establishes himself as a great ruler in the midst of the congregation. Rather, what he does is he preaches a legalistic gospel. And the legalistic gospel itself enslaves rather than frees. And consider this. If a legalistic gospel is preached, since we all know that we can't do everything perfect, somebody's going to be left trying to figure out which things the congregation has to get right, which legalisms will we give attention to, and who gets to do that but the false teacher. And you know what it is in the, at the end of the day? Even if he preaches sort of a, a legalistic gospel with humility... He winds up being the one who lords over which laws need to be paid great attention to in the midst of the congregation. And the people are enslaved, not only but from the teaching, but from the false gospel of legalism. He holds the keys to their sense of self-righteousness. You can see what's so wrong with this. Galatians elsewhere, where the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 4.9, but you, you, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? Do you really want to be enslaved to the worldly principle and all of its legalisms again, following after this false teaching? Not only are they making slaves of them, but if we move on to the next part of the verse. For you bear with it if someone makes slaves of you or devours you. Rather than building up, the false teachers are consuming Christ's church. The church exists not for God's glory, but for the satisfaction of the leader's appetites. And the Corinthians they put up with this. You can see why the Apostle Paul is incensed. He has to speak up. He has to tear down the foolishness of the fool. Verse, Galatians chapter 5, verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. There's a biting and a devouring that the Apostle Paul has, has argued against elsewhere in Scripture. And then in Mark chapter 12, there's a specific warning about the way that false teachers can prey on the weak and consume rather than heal. Mark chapter 12, verse 38. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around on, in long robes, like greetings in the marketplaces. They have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. What's interesting is all of those things, they're really just a list of things that would be honored in the culture. They've paid attention to what is the places of honor in the culture, and they've, they've worked their way into those places of honor. And then the congregation allows them to remain there and gives them a, res- a cultural respect and prestige. And watch what happens next. Who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Oh, they're a prayerful bunch, all right. But they're praying upon widows. They're praying upon the weak. They're taking advantage of those who do not have the privileged places that they've weaseled their way into. They're using their position of domineering authority in the culture to gain financially from the weak. And the church puts up with this. Not just the weak. The whole church. Friends, this is a problem. The Apostle Paul has to address it. Not only are they making slaves of you, not only are they devouring you, they're taking advantage of you false teacher's way is to use the church for their own gain. To, to use the, the church as leverage, not to display the glory of God and to make known the gospel, but as leverage to advance themselves in the community. Compare this with the way of Paul while he was among the Corinthians. Just in the next chapter, Second Corinthians 12, but granting, in verse 16, but granting that I myself did not burden you. I did not burden you. So instead of using the church as leverage to advance in the community, he actually sacrificed in order to be in their midst and to bring them news of God's glory and his gospel. Again, in the midst of gospel ministry, the church ought to be built up, not built Upon The church is not a pedestal for the cultural advantage of its leaders. Rather, it's the very dwelling place of the glory of God to be built upon for God's glory alone. Friends, the church is not the stepping stone for any one of our advancements. The church is the display pedestal for the glory of God. And all who see it are advanced. All who see it rejoice. All who look and cry out for mercy are saved. Not only are they being made slaves of, not only are they being taken advantage of, they're also putting on airs. Meanwhile, as the false teachers so mistreat the church and use it as a stepping stone for their own advantage, the congregation sits there wide-eyed in wonder at how impressive these fools are. Oh, we've got great leaders. I mean, Paul's gone, thank goodness, because these guys are impressive. They're amazed as they put on their airs. They have all the right places in the synagogue. They, they know all the right names in the city. They're well connected. Sam Storms draws this into contemporary relevance. In this quotation's constant reference to one's calling or gifting or anointing or past success or publishing record, perhaps ever so often with a prominent name dropped into a conversation at just the right time. telltale signs of the sort of arrogance that Paul has in view. See, the church ought to have a clear view of who its leaders truly are. Honestly, in my own experience, I found that, that churches are more than ready to be impressed by its ministers. What I've observed is that the the church, like the culture around us, have imbibed a celebrity culture or the idea that if we could just survive someone impressive in our midst, that, then we could be impressive like they are impressive. We can be a part of their impressive church and ministry. I've seen humble men, ministers of the gospel, exalted far beyond what is real by their very own congregations. It's almost like they need their pastor to be great. I've seen men who aren't building a platform for themselves being touted and puffed up by their congregation. It's as though the congregation themselves are putting on airs about their leaders, bragging that their pastor is truly great, so they are truly great. We're so twisted. Why? Because we think according to the flesh, and we think in the way, the ungodly way of the culture that we are swimming in, This is how prone the church is today to putting up with such posturing, platform building, that the church would build the platform themselves and then find someone to fill the slot. Be great among us. We ought to have a clear view of our leaders. They are who they are. All their strengths, all their weaknesses. We ought to have a clear view of it. But any genuine fruit Any truly genuine fruit that is born in the midst of the ministry of the gospel is the fruit of the word and spirit alone. This is our boast. This is our song. It's the fruit of the grace of God, and we ought to acknowledge it as such. Now, offers one more. They strike you in the face. These false teachers were abusive and angry Honestly, it may seem unlikely in our own cultural context, but this is probably not being used metaphorically. It's not the only cultural circumstance or city in the world where literally someone who is high up in the culture would look down on one who is weak and give them a backhand to show them their place. They're abusive and they're angry. That's why First Timothy chapter three, verse three is so important. A true elder, a minister of the gospel in the midst of the congregation is not violent, but gentle. Is anger the demeanor of the church's leaders? Corinth has put up with it willingly. I think it's important to pause there for just a moment and say that, that in preaching the word, in proclaiming the truth, in persuading one another, we ought to be passionate We ought to speak with conviction and with all the strength and authority that the word itself would give us to convey. But we should never yell in anger. We should never use a verbal backhand on a brother or a sister because we're angry because our ministry isn't working any other way. We ought to humble ourselves. And consider whether or not there are times that we've put up with such a way. Now, this is a difficult passage for me because how do you apply a passage like this when you're the gospel minister in the midst of the congregation on a particular Sunday morning? Well, one of the things you can do is you can evaluate yourself by it and take this very sis- seriously and I and I have and I, a desire too, along with the other elders at cross Point coast, but I think it's also important that we realize that this passage is not addressed to the false leaders. That's not the audience that the Apostle Paul is reaching out to. They're fools. And he's not going to address their foolishness. He's speaking to the church. Church, what have you put up with? What have you been impressed by? What have you lobbied for? What have you wished for? Honestly, where I've seen this sort of foolish comparison of leaders and ministries, I, I've felt like this when I've watched genuine ministers of the gospel among the partnership at Cross Point Coast genuinely love someone sacrificially, faithfully, gently, patiently, long sufferingly, at great cost to themselves. And I've watched them love this person. So many, when I first met them in the church, were in a season of acute trial, suffering, and sin. Many of you know what I'm talking about because it's you. You, when you first encountered the gospel that's been preached among you at Cross Point Coast, you yourself were in a acute season of suffering, trial, or sin. But after a season of healing, as as many in the congregation have labored sacrificially to minister a gospel balm, one of the things that we've seen occasionally is once the immediate sense of need, the acute edge is taken off, there's little need for those who have so faithfully served in the most recent suffering season now that the gospel balm has been applied. This scenario reminds me of what Paul's dealing with here. He was gentle with the Corinthians. He preached the gospel to a people who were lost apart from Christ. He was faithful to apply the gospel balm to their souls at great cost to himself. And they looked as though they'd received it. But for some, they only received it as a temporary soothing agent to life's real problems. Now that some of the acute issues have stabilized, they're ready for something more impressive than Paul and that silly gospel that he preached. They're looking for something stronger and more impressive in the community and all some sort of advantage that can be gained to moving on to the next thing after the gospel took the edge off of a, an acute suffering in life. I've watched this in the congregation, I've watched you labor. And seen someone seem to walk off after a season. When you know that the application of the gospel balm is not just a soothing ointment for a season. It's our only hope of peace and rest. I'm thankful for the many of you who have sat down in that ministry in the midst of the congregation. Receiving that gospel from one another. And not moving on to some more impressive thing in life but remaining situated in the gospel and the ministry of the saints. It's become easy in our day to compare the leaders and ministry around us to other leaders and ministries. But Paul is asking them not to compare in the flesh, but to remember and consider the gospel itself. Listen carefully. There are better programs. There are more dynamic speakers and better small groups in our community. But there is no other gospel. Let me be clear. Paul is not saying that he is the only gospel minister. In fact, everywhere Paul went... He instructed the raising up of elders that there would be other teachers. And the instruction was that they would preach the word in season and out of season, that there would be one gospel with its many ministers, that he would be nothing impressive. In fact, they would find out very quickly that Paul wasn't impressive at all. Anybody can preach this gospel, but it's got to be the gospel. The gospel which we preach, along with all who would preach this gospel, is the only true gospel. Paul's heartache is not that the Corinthians would have other shepherds who would care for them. Paul himself has raised up these men, but his concern is that they would begin to think like the culture that's around them and put up with leaders who are impressive and even successful, but who have abandoned the centrality of the gospel itself. No matter how impressive the church, the ministry, or the minister is, the standard by which every ministry, every church, every leader is evaluated is the gospel and the glory of God that is made known in the midst of the ministry. All other news, all other ministry, all other ministers are not good news. This is what we look for in our community. This is what we look for on our leaders, and this is the gospel that we look for to be at work in the midst of every congregation. Our one, way, one of the ways to evaluate the gospel and ministry in any one particular place is to evaluate the fruit of the gospel minister. One of the ways, is it humble service or is it puffed up using the church as a stepping stone? Does it actually seek your healing in Christ or is it just consuming you for advancement? Does it lead to freedom in Christ or enslavement to a worldly philosophy? Verse 21 is interesting. To my shame, I must say we were too weak for that. We simply didn't treat you like that, the Apostle Paul is saying. And, and you're accusing us of being weak because we didn't strong-arm you or seek to impress you by hiding our weakness? And you call us weak for that? I'm reminded of Sandy and I, in our first month of dating, I told her that I wasn't going to try to impress her. She's told me a couple times since then that maybe it would have been nice if we would have tried to impress her just a little bit. <laughs> I told her I wanted to do my best to be genuine around her. The question, of course, was whether or not genuine me was actually worth her time or not. Being genuine isn't automatically good. But the point was, if she was going to love me, I wanted to make sure it was for who I actually was. And if she was to find that it wasn't, and I just wasn't the right man for her... I didn't want it to be because I was pretending to be something I'm not. You see, in the church, we ought to be genuine as well. But the question of whether or not our ministry is worthy is not a matter of how impressive we ourselves are. It's whether or not we have been faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ, a singular evaluation The gospel is that Christ and him crucified is at the center of our proclamation. Are we clear that? And are our congregations clear that our part in the story is that of a sinner in need of redemption? That's our part of the story. That's what we contribute. That's what we bring to the table of grace. Not that we're impressive, but that we're in need. And what we proclaim is the greatness of Christ on his cross to forgive sinners like you and me and grant us life in his resurrection, that we would be situated under his kingdom reign as he sits on his throne and we await his return. It's Jesus who is sufficient. It's Jesus who is worthy of all praise. It's Jesus who is worthy of our submission To King Jesus, our message, our gospel is Christ and him crucified. Now, as the passage continues. In verse 21 in the second half, but whatever anyone else. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that dare to boast. Let me tell you, friends, boasting is dangerous. It takes daring. And he's a fool. He knows it to say these things. And it sounds like foolishness out of the mouth of Paul for the way that he is normally ministering among the Corinthians. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Language, culture, religious pedigree. He's got it. Are they Israelites? So am I, he says. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, the Apostle Paul lays out his Israeliteness. All right? He has a stake, a claim to make. Now, this is interesting to me. Verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. What even is a better servant of Christ? What does that look like? It's madness. That's what it looks like. I'm talking like a madman. What is a better servant of Christ? The one who's puffed up is the one who has a great seat in the synagogue. One who is culturally affluent. Well, Paul begins to deconstruct that very quickly as he begins to describe greater labors. The one who is a better servant of Christ is the one that suffers to make his name known. You can imagine the arrogance and the cruelty of such a ministry as to produce the fruit of verse 20, all the the enslavement and the arrogance that took place. Now consider Paul's ministry and its humility and sacrifice. We don't have time to look at each one particularly, but let me encourage you, walk through each one of the statements and sit in them for a moment, even prayerfully, that are made in verses 23 through 27. In verse 23 through 25, suffering, suffering, In physical persecution. Verse 25 through 26, suffering in the labor of gospel ministry. In verses 26 through 27, suffering in perseverance, going on even though it's exhausting. Verse 28, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. The Apostle bore a weight, and the weight that, that Paul bears is the weight for a jealousy, for the glory of God, and the effect of the gospel to be born in the midst of the congregations that he is planting. All of the above suffering takes place under the banner of love for Christ's church, his daily pressure and anxiety is for the church, where the false teachers have built themselves a nice, comfortable platform with a congregation under their feet. Paul has suffered to bring them to Christ, who alone is exalted. And the apostle Paul situates himself over and over as a partner in the gospel, a partaker together with the church of grace. It struck me, verse 23, when it says that he was near death, and I think, is that not the ministry to which we have been called? All of us. The priesthood of believers. The partners in the gospel together. Second Corinthians, at the beginning of this letter in chapter 4, verse 11 through 12, he says, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. All genuine love and gospel ministry feels like dying, because it is. This is the way of the cross. This is the way of the ministry of the gospel, to lose yourself for Christ and his sake and find your life in him alone, not advancement in the culture, not being found impressive or finding a people to lord it over. Now, the passage closes with an interesting event. In verse 31, the Lord God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, verse 32, the governor of under King Aretas, who was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Now, it's interesting. This event took place at the beginning of the Apostle Paul's ministry, just after his conversion on that road to Damascus. And what Paul experienced in Damascus was this rapid transition from exalted Pharisee that so very recently, people literally took their coats and laid them at his feet as he presided over the self-righteous execution of Stephen. Exalted. And now he is in Damascus. He's become so quickly a despised gospel preacher who had to sneak out of the city to save his own life. Do you see the boast that he's making? I don't boast in my exalted I had one. I had one. That's, that's no boast. He, he counts it loss. His boast is being made a humbled gospel minister. In just the blink of an eye, Jesus had converted Paul from one who was puffed up in his own pride in a ministry of persecution to the one who is brought low in the ministry of the gospel. Here's where he's going. He's going to verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. This is the way of gospel ministry. Next week we'll look at it in more more in depth in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 9. He says, My grace is sufficient for you, Jesus speaking to Paul. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Friends, the application of this passage, I think, is very particular. It's probably to each one of our hearts, depending where where we have been, depending on what suffering we have experienced in ministry or as a partner in the congregation, in ministry to another person in our midst, or whether we've had to watch people wander off, or we ourselves have wandered off after cultural relevance. But hear this, the church and its leaders just aren't impressive. The church and its leaders are weak, by definition, or we aren't the church. What is impressive, and it's truly impressive, it's worthy of a boast and great songs of rejoicing. What is impressive is that the church exists at all. And that's not us. What's impressive is that the gospel made its way to you and to me. And he brought me out of my pride and arrogance and gave me a sight of his glory, the work of his grace to be forgiven by his cross. It's the gospel that has been planted in us. It's the spirit that has caused his gospel to take root and to bear fruit. And it's Christ alone who is to be exalted. And so we sing, right, church? We sing and we go with news of that great grace. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are impressive. You are great. It's right that we would sing. Great is your faithfulness. Our part in the service where we get to speak our most words is a prayer of confession. The rest, Lord, may we privilege, and even there may we privilege, the hope that is found in Christ, that our hope is not in the sufficiency of our confession. Our hope is in the gospel by which we are saved, by grace, through faith. I pray that everyone here would see that you are impressive and that anyone here who is holding on to their own self, their own being, their own philosophy, their own way in this world, that they would humble themselves, confess their sin, receive your grace, and walk boasting in your glory. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for all of these things in Jesus' name, who alone is great. Amen.